Well, amen, and again, good morning, and welcome to King's Cross. If it's just your first time with us, welcome, glad that you're here, and uh, glad that we're in the sanctuary. I also uh, especially uh, want to just let you know this morning that our God, as a gracious and merciful God, also has a very holy sense of humor. So it's holy, so don't think anything inappropriate when I say sense of humor, but God has a holy sense of humor. There are a couple different ways I want to think about this holy sense of humor uh, kind of before we jump into our text this morning. First of all, he has a holy sense of humor in that he has a pastor preaching a text that that pastor needs to be punched in the forehead with, even the day that he's preaching it. So this morning, obviously, we're excited to be here. Uh, I woke up excited to be here, though a little nervous. I must confess some anxiety. This is where we'll get into the humor in just a moment. Uh, We've got, you know, 50 or so people out of town and going down with Cameron down to Glenwood. Pastor BT and his family's on vacation. Pastor Hez and his family uh, have a cold, and so they have a sickness. Pastor Craig got called out uh, to work. Uh, And so I was really curious, God, is anybody going to show up this morning? And it's going to be our first Sunday in the new sanctuary, but here's the thing. We're in between the lobby and the sanctuary. We're not sure if we should stay in the lobby one more week or come in the sanctuary. There, there's still some things to be done. Lord, who knows what's going to happen? And I sensed in my heart, Lord, I have no idea how things are going to go this morning. And then I remembered again, I'm preaching a text about trusting the Lord and not being anxious. Whew, my God has a holy sense of humor. Also, in this holy sense of humor, one of the things I love about being a pastor uh, is all and all of the children and babies uh, that God has given to this church. Uh, I know uh, continually we see more and more children excited about that. I know that there are at least eight or nine uh, ladies pregnant. Uh, I know that three or four behind closed doors, they're also pregnant. They're not telling anybody yet. Uh, so there's, there's about a dozen or so, some of which I don't even know about. Who knows, maybe you're pregnant this morning and you don't know it. And the Lord's holy sense of humor will continue. But one of the things I love about having lots of babies and lots of children are just some of the sweet stories that happens. And then again, I think there is a purity and a holy sense of humor that you can enjoy. One of those stories that's happened recently has happened with a sweet toddler in our church named Emma. And sweet Emma has, uh, goes to a community group with her community group. And in this community group, there's a man named Matt. And this man named Hat often wears a hat. He perhaps is sitting right over here with a hat on right now. (laughs) But Emma loves seeing Matt and so uh, enjoys Matt and the relationships that God is doing in the midst of the community group that she just refers to Matt as Matt in the hat because Matt always has a hat on. So Matt's name is Matt in the hat. Well, one night they were having community group. There's chaos. There's babies and kids everywhere. And and, uh, and Matt's going to open in prayer so they can eat together and have fellowship together. And Matt goes to pray. Well, underneath Matt's hat, you need to know there's no hair. And, uh, and I don't, I'm not sure that Emma knew this. So Matt takes off his hat to pray. And Emma responds immediately and goes, what? <laughs> and pointed at Matt as if she had seen a ghost. She was shocked with what, what was revealed underneath, or maybe what wasn't revealed underneath <laughs> Matt's hat. Now, I bring that up this morning. Again, there's, there's some comic uh, humor in that, some holy humor in that that is beautiful as toddlers are, are observing and making observations and just saying what they see and shocked. We come to this text this morning, and there, is, there should be a bit of a shock factor. There should be a little bit of a what in you when we come to this text. Now, unfortunately, it's not kind of because of this holy sense of humor. Instead, it's going to be because Israel, they're making the same mistakes over and over again. 
God has provided for them over and over and over. He showed up and he's shown them, I care for you, I love you, my, my covenant love is with you, I will protect you, I will provide for you, I'll make sure all of your needs are met, my covenant affection is on you. And over and over again, they make the same mistakes. They rebel against God. They don't trust his provision. And so there should be in us, as we read this text, again, a, a holy like, what? How could you not trust God after all that he's done? But as we do that, we also ought to look in the mirror, even like the pastor this morning who was anxious and say, what? How could you not trust God? Has he not provided for you? Has he not protected you? Has he not loved this church? Has he not guided and taken you to this very moment? And even respond and think about what do we do in these moments when this gets exposed, when this kind of sin in our hearts gets exposed? What is the solution for, for hard-hearted unbelief? Even when we ought to believe and have said we believed and have believed, but suddenly we find that we're not believing. What is the solution for hard-hearted belief? More grace from the life-giving God. That's the solution for hard-hearted unbelief, is more grace from the life-giving God. So let's pray and ask for his help, even as we jump into our text this morning. Father, we come to you, the God of all grace. And as we have studied and walked through the book of Exodus, this has been a rich study for our souls. And we've seen over and over again the lunacy of your people in Israel. And as we've done that, Lord, you've taken a mirror and put it upon our hearts. We've seen the same errors and sins there. And every time we look from there and we look to you and we see your steadfastness and your patience and your long-suffering, that you really are a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So even this morning, even now, speak to us. Give life-giving grace to unbelieving hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two major questions for you this morning. Question number one, have you forgotten his faithfulness to you? Question number one, have you forgotten his faithfulness to you? Let's look again, chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. Now, this word sin here doesn't mean sin the way we would think about sin. It's just near Sinai, so it's just describing a place. From the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and all our livestock with thirst? So let's set the scene a little bit. Again, especially if you're new, maybe you're the first time with us. Israel, the people of God, had been under uh, Egyptian slavery, under a bondage in Egypt for some 400 years. God had miraculously delivered them out by sending forth 10 plagues. Then he parts the Red Sea. He sets them uh, through the Red Sea. There's been all kinds of miracles. And even over the last few weeks, they've been out in the wilderness. As in our study, not them in the last few weeks. We've studied it the last few weeks. They've been out in the wilderness. And in the midst of it, at one point, they come to a place called Mara, and, and they, they don't have any water. They're thirsty. God shows up supernaturally. There's some water they find that's bitter. Has Moses put a stick in the water, turns it sweet. They drink the water. God provides for them a supernatural miracle. Then suddenly, fast forward, and they're hungry. They have nothing to eat. They're, God is testing them even then. God shows up, provides manna from heaven, quail. Uh, and, and takes care of their, their physical needs for food. We joke that it was like duck donuts, except that we're healthy. 
So God provides for them. Twice they're finding out I'm in physical need. I'm thirsty at one point. He gives me supernatural miracle for water. I'm hungry at one point. He gives me manna and quail from heaven so that, to meet my need. And then suddenly we come to this text. They've been eating manna from heaven and quail. Every day he's been meeting their needs. We're a month or so maybe later. And suddenly we come to this text. And God takes them from one location to another. And they obey him. So at this point, it's like, praise God. He's speaking. He's testing them. He said, I'm giving you these tests to see if you obey my commands and my word. Israel hears you need to move to Rephidim. They say, okay, bet, we're going. And so they obey him. But then they run into a familiar problem. No water. Now, again, at this moment, (laughs) surely somebody in the six, I mean, 600,000 plus men, women, children, like surely somebody in the building is going to say, Hey, hey, no need to panic. We've been here recently. Y'all remember what he did in Mara? You remember what he did with the stick and the water and it was bitter and it became sweet and he took care of us? Also, hey, we had manna this morning. <laughs> like he's still taking care of us supernaturally. So you would imagine my God has convinced me over and over and over supernaturally that he loves us and that he'll protect us, he'll provide for us, he'll take care of us. Surely they're going to respond with, we need something to drink. We should probably ask God. No. No one says, hey, we know what to do. Let's pray. Instead, they grumble. They quarrel. They fight. They do what they do. (laughs) Grumble. This is the fourth time. Look back, chapter 14. We'll see these tests and their grumbling. Chapter 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. In that scene, they're right on the edge of the Red Sea. They're stuck. Pharaoh and his army are coming after them. And they look at Moses. And after all of these uh, 400 years of bondage and slavery, saying, please, God, get us out. God gets them out. Now they're at the Red Sea. And they're like, Moses, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? And in this moment, God is testing and showing something. Then he parts the Red Seas and delivers them to safety. And they see, wait a minute, we were tripping. You got us out of Egypt and you got us through the Red Sea. But then flip over chapter 15, verse 24. The first time they go thirsty. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So they were thirsty at Marah with undrinkable bitter water. He made the water sweet. Chapter 16, verse 2. Again, they're hungry. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. Again, I would be interested in meat pots. But anyway, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So we see this is what Israel does. They find themselves in need and they grumble and complain and fight among each other, particularly at Moses, the deliverer God has sent. This is what they do over and over and over. And so in this moment, you would think again, all of the plagues, the deliverance through the Red Sea, you've already had your thirst met, you've already had your hunger met, and you're thirsty, and the first thing you're going to do is, you know what, let's turn up the grumbling. (laughs) Let's get even more feisty with the grumbling. Literally, the word used in Hebrew here is, it's got more of a like, hey, we're not just trying to protest, we want to throw a riot. Moses says in verse 4, like, they're trying to stone me, Lord. So at this point, they're not just grumbling against Moses. Like, I have beef with your leadership. It's like, yo, can we kill him? And again, think of all that God has done to this point. 
And they go to grumbling, this grumbling even worse than before. As fallen human beings, we seem to have a short memory of God's faithfulness in the past and a quick murmuring trigger aimed at whoever we think deserves it. So real quick, we'll forget God's faithfulness in the past. And when we do that, we're ready to fire whoever's around us and blame them for it. This is what we see in Israel. It's what we see in the human heart. And so what I want to do, even from these three verses, is just make four observations, four evidences that you've forgotten God's faithfulness. Four evidences of the heart that's forgotten God's faithfulness. Evidence number one, your obedience is circumstantially conditioned. Your obedience to God is circumstantially conditioned. What, do I, what, what am I saying? Again, I want you to note, they were fat and happy. God said, go, and they're like, okay, great, we'll do it. But then as soon as God's will puts them in a situation they don't like, sin. So when God gives me a full belly, I'm happy to obey God. As soon as I'm thirsty, I'm disobeying God. Circumstantially conditioned. So are they actually obeying God or are they obeying a full belly? This is even what we see in this moment. Quail and manna, here I am, send me. (laughs) Hungry or thirsty, stone Moses. (laughs) And so you see their obedience is circumstantially conditioned. When peace like a river attendeth my way, facts. When sorrows like sea billows roll, nah, bro, I'm not interested in that. So often our obedience to God is if God is submitting to our will and doing what we want circumstantially. But as soon as his will is something else, we say, no thanks, I'm not interested. One evidence you've forgotten God's faithfulness is that your obedience is circumstantially conditioned. Have you forgotten his faithfulness to you? Second evidence, you've forgotten God's faithfulness. Again, you have a quick trigger for the leaders God has placed in your life. you got a quick trigger for the leaders God has placed in your life. God has been so faithful to Israel, so powerful working among them through Moses, who's imperfect, and we've seen his flaws and we've talked about them. But God has been so faithful to lead his people through this uh, flawed leader, Moses. And yet, as soon as circumstances go south, instead of turning to God with Moses, as Moses has led them to do, they turn and attack him. Friends, there's a direct correlation between unbelief in God and quarreling among people. There's a direct correlation. You put a bunch of people in a room together who do not believe in the faithfulness of God, they're going to fight. There's a direct correlation between the two. The more unbelief in the one true God there is, the more fights you should expect Now, this is the case because unbelief in God is always filled with some sort of God substitute. So you may stop believing in God, but you will replace him with some false God. So there's going to be an idol that you choose. You're built to worship. God designs you to worship. You will worship. So the question is not, will you worship? It's whom will you worship or what will you worship? You will worship. You are a worshiper. You're built to do it. So when you say, God, I will not worship you, I will not submit to you, and you take him off the throne in that way in your heart and your life, you will replace him with something. And when you replace him with something, this God substitute, this idol, that idol is going to collide with the idols of others. Because that God is going to tell you to make certain sacrifices to appease that God and to give you what you want. But that God doesn't agree with the other people's God, and so you put those two people in the room together, and they're going to fight. If we have different gods on our hearts, you can be sure that we have quarrels in our midst. You're built to look for identity, to look for purpose, to look for explanations of all the brokenness, 
to look for hope. You can't help but look for all of those things. Who am I? What's my identity? What's my purpose? Like, why did God place me here? But also, I need explanations. What's wrong with the world? Why is it so jacked up? Why is it so many fights and so many sin and so much death and so much suffering and so much cancer? Like, give me an explanation. And, and then hope. Where can I find hope in the midst of all? You're going to look. You're a worshiper. You're going to ask those questions. The question is, who are you going to let answer them? God or someone else? Now, all that I'm telling you right now about how the human heart works and quarrels and fights and belief in God comes straight from James chapter 4. Read it with me and look and see it together. James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? What causes fights among you? False gods in your heart. And this is what James tells us. This is what's going on. This is why children fight with parents naturally, because there's sin in the child's heart. This is what causes fights among spouses. This is what causes fights and church splits. This is what causes uh, countries to be divided and, and to rebel against civic authorities or to have civic authorities who are rebellious in their civic authority. <laughs> what causes fights and quarrels among us, it's that we have hearts that run to other gods. Have you forgotten his faithfulness to you? Well, do you have a quick trigger for leaders that God has placed in your life? That's evidence that you've forgotten his faithfulness. Third evidence you've forgotten his faithfulness. You act like God is dead. You act like God is dead. Look again at verse 3. And this, is, this has been a common theme for Israel. When they're mad at Moses, they're quarreling with him, so they got a quick trigger for their leader. It's like, yo, you just brought us out here to die. So this dramatic language, this exaggeration, this language that, that's going after, unbelief loves drama and exaggeration. Unbelief loves drama and exaggeration. As I noted a couple of weeks ago, these words in marriage, you never, you always, why do you every single time? Quarreling leads to dramatic language and broad sweeping statements of exaggeration. And I've heard a number of couples say, why did you have to say that? <laughs> it's messed up some of y'all's arguments. I hope that it's actually helped some of your arguments. That you realize this is what unbelief and rebellion against God leads to, is a dramatic exaggeration of the current circumstances that you're in. But you can only do that when you're acting like, and in this case particularly, God is dead. So in this context, what I mean by that is, it's almost like you're saying, like, I don't even know how we can recover from this. We have no hope. I've tried everything. Yeah, except God. <laughs> Like you're acting as if he's not there. Like Israel, right now in this moment, we're thirsty. We've tried everything. Moses, it's your fault. Let's kill him. Like, is God dead? Like, did you forget what Yahweh has done? Like they're living and acting as if God is dead. Uh, Spurgeon tells a story about Martin Luther and his wife, Kate, that is fantastic that I want to read to you. Martin Luther was a very cheerful man as a rule, but he had terrible fits of depression 
He was at one time so depressed that his friends recommended him to go away for a change of air to see if he could get relief. He went away, but he came home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, his wife Kate, Catherine von Bora, was sitting there, dressed in black, and her children round about her, all in black. Oh, oh, said Luther, who is dead? Why, she said, doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. Then he burst into a hearty laugh and said, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I have been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go and take off thy black. <laughs> That's a godly wife. So think about this moment, this illustration. She's like, like you're, you're Martin Luther the reformer, and you're living like God is dead. All right, let's throw on the black clothes and mourn. <laughs> let's act like he's dead then to expose. Like when we live with anxious hearts like God won't take care of us, we're living like he's dead. Like he doesn't love us. Like he doesn't care for us. Now, I just want to take this uh, just a second. And again, I confess to my sin of anxiety to you even this morning. I confess it during the pastoral prayer. But I want to take a second and just give you a pastoral word about anxiety. Now, I, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying taking medication is sinful or even that it can't be helpful. But often, anxiety medication merely treats the symptom all the while the disease of unbelief goes untreated. For some, anxiety might be a medical issue. For many, if not most, anxiety is a symptom of the disease of unbelief. And so we must point this out because if you've got a certain disease that's causing a certain symptom and you treat the symptom but not the disease, the symptom doesn't get healed anyway. And so we need to understand sometimes the issue going on is in our heart. We're living like God's dead. That's why we're anxious. We've forgotten his faithfulness. We've forgotten his provision. We've forgotten his presence. We've forgotten that he loves us. We've forgotten God is there. So again, I'm not, again, I'm not saying all medication is wrong. I'm not saying sometimes that might be helpful. Even it might be helpful to go get it to calm the symptom down so that you can deal with the disease of unbelief if that's what's causing the anxiety. But an evidence that you've forgotten the faithfulness of God is definitely that you live like God is dead and like he can't help you. Friends, God can help you. Have you forgotten his faithfulness to you? Are you living like he's dead? Fourth evidence of unbelief and that you've forgotten. You think you're the teacher rather than the student. You think you're the teacher rather than the student. I don't know if you noticed, but Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, in the previous two interactions, chapter 15, verse 25, when the, the, the bitter water was made sweet, chapter 16, verse 4, when manna from heaven, God was testing Israel. So there's been two tests already. Yahweh testing Israel, will you obey my commands? Now Israel's responding, I'm going to test God. And so Moses points this out, you're quarreling with me, is you testing the Lord? Do you see the root sin underneath our unbelief? We demand God exchange places with us. We're the instructor testing him. We're going to give God the test and see if he passes it to our approval. So literally, it's like, no, 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 I'm going to look at my circumstances. God, if you will do this, then I will do that. Which literally what you're saying is, God, you get off the throne, I'm on the throne, I test you, I'll see if you pass my test. And so we assume we're the instructor, the teacher, and that we know the best circumstances to test God, to grow him, to teach him the lessons he needs to learn, rather than we submit to the teacher who's teaching us what we need to learn. But here's the problem. <laughs> You're not perfect, nor am I. We're not all powerful. 
We don't know everything. We didn't breathe life into man. We didn't create all things ex nihilo, out of nothing, and just speak creation into existence. We didn't gather a people that fell from their sin because we're so gracious and part the Red Seas and get them through and send forth ten plagues and, and demonstrate and feed them. Like we, that, We're not God. So when we go testing him, we're making a massive error. We're acting like the instructor when we're the student. And our instructor is full of love and mercy and kindness. He's faithful to us. If he gives us a test, it's good for us. He's not being mean to us. He means to expose our unbelief and our, our forgetting of his faithfulness so that he might remind us that he's faithful and give us belief. So what is the solution for your unbelief? So if those four evidences, if you find, my goodness, I, there are certainly aspects of my heart where I've forgotten the faithfulness of God. Well, then what is the solution? Second question, what is the solution for your unbelief? Look again at verse 4 through 7. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So what I want to do is before we see the solution to your forgetting God's faithfulness in Exodus, I want to show it to you again in James chapter 4. So we're going to go back and read it. We're going to see the solution of the quarreling there. And then I want to show you parallel the exact same solution here in Exodus chapter 17. So again, back to James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions or those false gods. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously of the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Problem. Solution. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So what's the solution to us forgetting the faithfulness of God, to our unbelief? What does James say? He gives more grace. <laughs> so this fight and quarreling reveals you have a problem. The symptom are quarrels and fights. The disease is unbelief in God and internal desires that have become God-like. The medicine is God gives more grace. Therefore, repent and seek the Lord. The symptom fights. The disease, unbelief. Medicine, grace. God gives more grace. So this is what James says the solution is. Back to Exodus chapter 17. What do we see there for the solution? Notice in verse 4, Moses cries out to God. So instead of quarreling, Moses cries out in prayer. So again, we've said this during, during all of this. It's not wrong to lament. 
It's not wrong to weep, to grieve, to yell out to God in prayer, God, I need you, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm in need. Like all of that's an act of worship. Read the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are lament Psalms that says, God, I'm bringing my complaint to you, but I'm choosing to trust you and that you're good. This is what Moses does, and it's a great contrast. They are thirsty. They really do need water. Like they're being dramatic about it, but there is a real need. (laughs) They will die if they don't have water. That is true. Moses in this moment, the difference between Israel and Moses in this moment is Moses is saying, God, we need something to drink. (laughs) Like we're suffering, so he cries out in prayer. What a beautiful picture of leadership. And we'll talk more about that next week, particularly spiritual leadership that we see from Moses. We take needs to God in prayer and beg and plead with him. God, we, we need you to move. But notice what happens. Yahweh provides. So again, how many times they got to learn this lesson? (laughs) How many times they got to take the hat off and us be like, what? (laughs) How many times are we going to forget God's faithfulness? Like at some point you're reading it like, Lord, just smash them. (laughs) Stop. Don't give them any more water. They don't deserve it. It's true. None of us deserve grace. That's what grace is. It's an undeserved gift. And he gives more grace. He's long-suffering, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so he says, okay, I'm going to give you something to drink. I've set you free through the Red Sea. I've made the bitter water sweet. I gave you fresh duck donuts every single morning. You're still failing. You're still complaining. And I'm going to respond by giving you more. God is just not like us, praise God. (laughs) He's not like us. He gives more grace. More grace. He provides in this moment life-giving water for them. That's his response to their failing the test yet again. And then testing him arrogantly is he gives more grace. Life-giving water flowing from the rock. But pay attention. Notice where and how he gives this grace. First notice where, Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. When's the first time we saw Horeb in our study of Exodus? When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. So God's presence showed up. God made some promises. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to worship at Sinai. That's like, and that's currently where Moses was interacting with God as he revealed himself and revealed he's Yahweh, the one true God, the great I am. And now at this moment at Horeb, he's demonstrating, hey, there's going to be a rock. And this rock is going to give forth living water. He's keeping his promises. Then afterwards, when they get to, uh, go to Sinai, and he's going to reveal himself in the law, in the Ten Commandments, at Sinai. So there's all kind of intimate interactions at Horeb. So it's important to see God is doing something. He's, he's connecting some dots. I keep my promises, and I'm redeeming a people, and I'm redeeming them for a new life. And so he's demonstrating this even in the where. But notice the how. He says, Moses, go to this rock at Horeb, and I will stand on it. And then you strike the rock. With the staff that is the sign and symbol of my very presence with you. I wanted Egypt to know and I want Israel to know. It's by the strong hand of the Lord Israel came out of Egypt. And that staff is showing it's not Moses, it's the strong hand of the Lord. So then what he's telling Moses is I'm going to stand on the rock and you're going to strike me with my arm. So God is going to strike God in order to send grace. Uh Uh-oh, this is sounding like gospel. (laughs) This is sounding like something else is going on, and he's teaching us how he gives grace. He's showing 
And even you need to know throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, 15, 18, and 30, 1 Samuel 2, 2, the Lord is referred to as the rock. So Moses strikes the Lord, and out of the Lord flows life-giving water. And then Moses says, we're going to name this place Massa and Meribah. Massa, which means testing, Meribah, which means quarreling. So maybe for us, you, you could call it Testville and Quarrelsboro is maybe what we would name it. Like, I want you to remember what happened here. You rebelled, you sinned, and the rock was struck with the staff of God in order to give you more grace. Notice the logic. The symptom, quarreling against Moses. The disease, unbelief in the Lord's provision and his presence. At the end, you tested the Lord. Is the Lord not among us? So there's unbelief in the Lord that's revealing itself in quarreling. And what's the medicine? God gives more grace. Therefore, repent and seek him. And even name these, this place this way so that you remember his grace. So how and why is this their solution and ours? How does more grace solve us for getting his faithfulness? Again, I hinted at it, but let me highlight the fact that the life-giving waters of grace flow out from the rock that's being struck. The Lord Jesus, early in his earthly ministry, had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She's kind of having a little bit of debate with him because she doesn't want her sin exposed. And she's like, ah, we're at Jacob's well, and we'll worship one day here. And like, okay, like she's just trying to dodge the interaction. Jesus responds, John 4, verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus in this statement, thinking about worship, is, is making a claim to be the, the, the source of life-giving water. And again, let's think about the rock. God told Moses he would be on the rock. And he instructed Moses to take the staff, the instrument and symbol of his strong hand, and strike the rock. So again, God instructed the striking of God in order to give life-giving grace. Isaiah 53, this promised suffering servant that's coming. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord, the Lord has laid home on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Lord Jesus, at the end of his life, nailed to a cross by sinful hands, struck again and again along the way. 
but then pierced for our transgressions, though he had none of his own. But do you know what happens just before and just after Jesus dies on the cross for sinners like us? John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side and with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The rock pierced through his blood, cleansing, life-giving water to those who would repent and believe. Quarreling, complaining, forgetting his faithfulness. Do you have those symptoms today? Unbelief, testing God, trusting in false gods. That's your disease. God is more grace. Jesus was the rock that was struck so that the wellspring of life might flow into your heart anew or for the first time this morning. He's the solution. He's the medicine. Christ is the one. God the Father striking God the Son, not in any kind of divine child abuse like nonsense liberal scholars would say. The Son says, no, no, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. The Son's like, no, I'm here to save you. And on the third day, he gets up out of death saying, and I did everything necessary in order to save you so that God could give you more grace so that one day in 2022, you can gather in some new sanctuary and hear about the fact you still have unbelief and find out there's more grace. This is is Christ our King, the life-giving rock who sends forth the grace of God. So what do you do with this? How do you respond then? Because it's not just like, man, now I get grace and I can just keep, you know what I'm saying, living like God's dead. That's, that's not how the heart ought to respond to this gospel. That's not how you ought to, to respond to this. And maybe there's some people in the room that's like, man, are you stretching the whole rock illustration in the water? I don't know. Let's ask Paul and figure out how we should respond. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So how ought we respond? We should repent of sin and run to God. So we should find out, God, there is unbelief in my heart. You have exposed that. And you have exposed that you are the solution, that you give more grace. And I want to respond to that grace by sprinting after you and sprinting away from my sin. For there were some, even Moses. So you might be thinking this is the same story as Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20 happens later. Back at the same place. And again, we're going to have a rock. Again, they're going to get water from it. But in that time, Moses actually rebels. He's told told to speak and it, it happened. Instead, he strikes the rock again. He doesn't get to go in the promised land. Joshua, his assistant, then will lead the people of God into the promised land. And some of the Israelites, even in that, never go to the promised land and actually reveal they never were believers in Yahweh to begin with. Instead, 
They had hard hearts. Hard hearts. That's a relevant statement studying the book of Exodus. Hard hearts like Pharaoh. And the psalmist tells us in Psalm 95, 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So we should leave this morning understanding that unbelief does have a solution, more grace in Christ. But we should repent of our sin of unbelief, not rest in it. We should say, God, you are God. You are good. You will provide. You will protect. You are with us. The answer to the question, is the Lord not with us? Of course he's with us. Jesus himself is God with us. And then he said, it's better for me to ascend and send forth the Spirit so God could be within us. Of course God is with us. Therefore, we should flee from sin and run to him. Non-Christian friends, if you're here and you've never come to Christ, we'd invite you to do it even today. Repent. Today is the day of salvation. A day of judgment is coming. And on that day, there will not be more grace to be dispensed. You'll either be covered under the grace of God because of the rock that was struck in your place and given grace to you, or you will take on God's wrath yourself. And so we would say, flee. Today is the day of salvation. Flee to the Lord and receive his grace. And come walk with us and figure out what it looks like to grow in this grace. Come help us. We'll help you. Christians, praise God he gives more grace. Respond to that grace by pursuing him. Let's close in prayer.